Thank you very much, uh, Ruben, for reading for us. Um, Before we uh, get right into this passage together, I would like us to just pray for a moment. Let's do that right now. Uh, Father, we do thank you for your word. We confess that uh, the Bible is the very word of God, that it is without error, that it is inspired and infallible, and there is truth there that is relevant for all times and places. We pray, Father, that as we listen to your word now, that you would open our ears to understand and our hearts to receive uh, and open my lips to speak your truth. Father, give us faith, faith in, in Jesus as he is revealed in your word. In his name we pray, amen. And also, just very briefly, a quick announcement about next week. Uh, I I will be away uh, next Sunday with my family. And so, uh, Kyle Hackman, who is planting a church in East Toronto, will be with us and will be uh, preaching the word together. And I'm sure that you will give him a very warm uh, what he's doing in East Toronto. He's he's planting a church kind of near the beaches east of the Don Valley, which is uh, a really tough place to plant a church. So he's got some pretty fascinating stories to share about uh, the work there so far. So that's just uh, uh, an announcement about what's happening here next week. It's also a great opportunity for us to get to know our brothers and sisters from from our denomination a little bit better, right? We're small and new and we don't know a lot of people and uh, it's great for us to connect with with friends from other places. So anyhow, uh, for about three chapters now, we've been Uh, Listening to the Apostle Paul pound away at an extremely important message. He has been reminding these Galatian Christians, and remember, uh, he's reminding these Galatian Christians that there is one way and only one way that they can possibly be reconciled to God, and that is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Remember that there was this group of people who had come from Jerusalem or Judea area and had been telling the people there, listen, uh, the Apostle Paul has told you some very important things about the necessity of faith in Jesus Christ. That's good. That's important. But he hasn't told you the whole story. The whole story is this. Once you believe in Jesus, you need to adopt the Old Testament purity laws, clean laws, circumcision laws in order. You need to kind of become an almost an ethnic Jew, religious Jew certainly, in order to be a Christian. And the Apostle Paul has been hammering away again and again and again and again and saying, look, that's not true. That's not actually the way that God had worked with His people originally. So last week we saw that Paul goes back to the, uh, to the, to the father sort of, of, of the Jewish people, Abraham, whom God uh, established this covenant relationship with, and he shows that Abraham was saved by grace through faith. He wasn't saved by grace through faith in uh, the known Jesus that you and I know looking back on uh, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, but he was saved by his faith in the coming Messiah that is Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say in, in the Gospels, he goes so far as to say, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced and was glad. So that's what we were talking about last week. And we've been talking sort of on this theme for a whole bunch of weeks. Now, a natural 
question that would pop up in your head if you were listening to this originally, and hopefully it's popping up in your head as you're listening to it now, 2,000 years later, is this. Well, what is the law about then? Like, what's the point of it? What's the purpose of it? Paul has been hammering away at how the law is no longer relevant in the same way it was in the past. What, what is the point of the law now? And that's a good question. I would hope it's a question that maybe you're asking too. Have you ever read the Old Testament, particularly the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, contains a lot of the laws? Have you ever read the Old Testament and thought to yourself, I got to be honest, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get what all these laws are here for. And it goes on and on. Sometimes you do... You, you know how at the beginning of the year you have, you have all these resolutions and one of them is I'm going to read the Bible in a year, right? And so you get some app and you open it up and it tells you that today you're reading Leviticus 4 through 9. And you kind of go, oh, right? And you, you try to read through it and it just seems so bizarre to you. What is the point of all these laws going on? And are there... Is there a point to these laws for us today? Is there, is there any relevance for all this stuff today, especially the law that is contained in God's uh, commands of the moral law, like Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, and Deuteronomy 5, etc.? What's, what's this stuff for today? Well, today, what we get from the passage that we're going to unpack together is kind of an, what you could call an interpretive key, meaning... Um, when you understand what Paul teaches us here, you, 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 you better understand how to read the old... What Paul does for us is he explains for us the purpose of the law. Now, you know how sometimes we focus on elementary teachings of Scripture, and then sometimes we might focus on kind of intermediate teachings of Scripture. Occasionally, we have to deal with what you could call sort of the advanced class, of understanding the Bible? Well, that's this morning. This is a tough passage. We're going to have to exercise our brains today pretty hard, but hopefully uh, it will be worthwhile for us as we see Paul explain for us a little better what the point of the law is. So that's, that's what we're looking at. We're, we're putting the law in its place, so to speak. And there is an outline in the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along. The first thing that we're going to look at here together is the relationship between the law and the promise. And that's explained in verses 15 through 18 of the passage in which we just read. See, the, the Judaizers were saying, or this, this, yes, God gave a promise to Abraham, that's true. But then later, God gave the law through Moses. And that law replaced the promise as the heart of God's relationship with his people. And that changes things. And you're supposed to obey the law in order to get the blessing of God. Paul says that's not true. In verses 17 and 18, he says this, What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. And, and what Paul is probably referring to is the, the story in Genesis chapter 22, where 
If you know your Bibles, you know that uh, Abraham is told by God to take his son Isaac and go up to Mount Moriah and, and uh, sacrifice his son to prove his love to God, right? And of course, Abraham does that, or he's about to do that, and then just before the, the knife comes down, God stops him and says, I know that you love me because you are willing to give your son for me, your only son, and uh, he provides a ram instead. But in that passage, it says this, in chapter 22, verses 17 and 18, it says this, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, listen to this, all nations on earth will be blessed. All nations on earth will be blessed. And so that's the, the promise that the uh, Apostle Paul is kind of thinking through. And that last part helps explain why Paul mentions in our Galatians passage, why he mentions this idea of seed, not seeds. See, he says, God said to Abraham, all the nations are going to be blessed through you. And of course, the people are thinking as, the, as they're reading the Old Testament, as they're watching the history unfold and they're seeing Abraham get all these descendants, they're thinking, aha, it's through the, the nation of Israel, through all these descendants of Abraham that the world is going to be blessed. But Paul says, no, they're going to be blessed through your seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Now, here's the point that the Apostle Paul is making. The point that he's making is, is that salvation has always, from the very beginning when God, if I can put it this way, hatched this plan and entered this relationship with Abraham many, 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 many centuries ago, the plan has always been that salvation would come through this promised seed, this Messiah, this Jesus Christ. That's always been the plan. So Paul says, I'm not teaching anything new. I'm not teaching anything different from the Old Testament. I'm not teaching anything different from the first five books of the Bible, from the Torah. And he says, this promise that God made with Abraham, it cannot be undone. The law can't replace it later. Remember, they had said, you know, well, it got replaced by the Mosaic law. And he says, yeah, sure, the Mosaic law was added 430 years later, but it can't replace the promise because that would be a different way of salvation. And it can't be both. It has to be one or it has to be other. It's either on a promise or it's on keeping the law. It can't be both. Now that I've confused you sufficiently, let me try to clarify things very quickly with just a simple illustration. If I say to you, hey, after the service, come on back to the bar with me, I got a thousand bucks for you I want to give you. Who is responsible for you getting that thousand bucks? Me, right? I made the promise. All you have to do is believe me and show up at the bar, and you will get your $1,000. But what if I said to you, look, I've got a bunch of, and this could actually happen, I've got a bunch of landscaping that needs to be done at my house. It's a disaster. How about you come over, and you do that landscaping that I need done, and I give you 1000 bucks. Now who's responsible for you getting the 1000 bucks? It's you, right? you got to do the work. 
So the responsibility is either mine or it's yours. It's never, it, it can't be both. It's one or the other. And Paul is saying that since the promise came first, since God established this relationship with Abraham through a promise first, it cannot be replaced or undone by a law later on. And you might say, well, why not? Why can't that happen? Can't God just do whatever He wants? I mean, He's God, right? If He wants to change from promise to law, who's going to stop Him, right? Well, verse 15 says something really important. It says... Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. He uses this term duly established, meaning that this was like, this was like guaranteed in law. You can't, just, you can't just take a contract and rip it up and start over. You can't just take NAFTA and rip it up and start over. Come on, people. You get the reference? Right? Trump won't... Uh, forget it. Fine. You're, you're tracking on the Bible. That's fine. We'll, st- we'll keep tracking on the Bible then. Um, you can't just take the contract and tear it up. And in, in verse 15, Paul says that this, re- this relationship between God and Abraham, this is a contract. This is a duly established covenant, and you can't just tear it up. And this is what's so incredible, okay? Uh, there's a story in Genesis 15, a very strange story. After it, Paul makes, or sorry, Abraham and God meet, God makes these promises about how he is, uh, uh, Abraham's seed will be as many as the, the, the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, etc. He promises that he will be his God and, he will be, and, and Abraham will be his people and the father of his people and he will bless the world through him, etc. And then this weird thing happens. They enter into a covenant. So God says to Abraham, take a bunch of animals. And what I want you to do is I want you to cut them in half. And I want you to line them up. So you got half the goat here and half the goat over there and half the whatever here and half there and, and, and kill some birds and put them on either side and all that kind of stuff. And the idea was, is in ancient covenants, this is what you would do. This is a way of signing a contract. You would do that. And then together, you and the person you're making a covenant with, you would walk through the pieces of dead bodies as the blood flowed through and you'd get the, fl- the blood on your feet and stuff like that. And what you were saying was, was if I break my end of this covenant, of this relationship, if I renege on it, may what happened to these animals happen to me. It's very dramatic, right? It's a lot better than sitting down with a lawyer and, you know, just signing a piece of paper and they stamp it with their seal. It's very, I mean, if we had more contracts like that, people would probably keep them, I would think. Anyhow, so this is, so this is what Abraham does. He cuts everything up, right? And because Abraham is the servant and God is the almighty God, Abraham naturally assumes, because this is how it was done in the ancient world, that God is going to say, now get thee through the the line here. Go walk through those pieces because I'm God. I'm making a relationship with you. I'm the boss. You're You're not. You're the servant. You promise that you will keep your end of the bargain. But that's not what happens. Instead... Abraham falls into a a sleep, and he he has this vision. And in this vision, he sees this thing set up for the contract, but all of a sudden, he sees this, this, this torch and this pot, this flaming pot that go through the pieces. And the, the torch and the pot, they actually represent God. 
And what Abraham is witnessing is witnessing God walking through, in a sense, walking through these pieces without Abraham saying that I will meet all the obligations of our relationship together myself. I will do it. I will not require you to do it. I will do it. R.C. Sproul, some of you have heard of him. It's his favorite passage in the Bible, in the whole Bible. And what he says is happening in this moment is, he says, God is saying, may my immutability become mutability. My unchangeability become changeable. May my infinity suffer finitude. May the impossible become possible. In other words, may I die. May I be cut up. May I be cut off if I don't fulfill the obligations of this relationship. Now, this is incredible. In other words, God bound himself to Abraham and to this promise with Abraham himself. He said, I will take on all these responsibilities. Abraham doesn't have to go through the pieces. And now you fast forward to the time of Jesus Christ, which Isaiah 53 prophesied when it said he was cut off from the land of the living. And you look at the cross, and that is precisely what happened. On the cross, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, he fulfilled those terms of the covenant. He was cut off for our failure to be faithful to God, to obey God, to follow God, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we deserve to be cut up because we were the ones who should have gone through the the pieces, but Jesus was cut up, in a sense, instead of us. You know, there's a lot of people, I talk to people about Christianity, and we talk about the cross, and now it's Easter season is coming upon us, right? So you have opportunity to talk about the crucifixion and what happened and that kind of stuff. And sometimes what you'll get is people saying, you know, here's one of my problems with Christianity. God demanding blood. It seems so barbaric. It seems so old-fashioned. It seems so pathetic, really, that God would demand our blood because we have violated his law. And put aside whether or not it's fair for God to demand perfect obedience to the law or not, but just think about this. If you understand the gospel, God doesn't just demand blood for the forgiveness of sins. He offered his own. He offered his own. No other religion has a God who says, here are the requirements and I will fulfill them on your behalf for you. If you look at uh, the, the cover of your bulletin, you'll see this quote from John Stott. He's an Anglican theologian who said this, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. So the relationship between the law and the promise is this. The law does not supersede the promise. The law doesn't replace the promise. Instead, the law is related to the promise. It has a purpose in relationship to the promise, and that's what we're going to move to now, okay? So, second point, 
What's the purpose of the law? And that's what verses 19 through 25 explains. It says in verse 19, what then was the purpose of the law? It says, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. It was added because of transgressions. What does that mean? What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that the law exists to highlight sin. That was one of its purposes, to shine, so to speak, to shine a light on our sinful nature, the way, the way a floodlight lights up a dark building. And this is actually an amazing insight of Scripture that has been, you know, I don't want to say it's true because psychologists have sort of uh, supported it through their studies, but this is one of those insights of Scripture that psychology and sociology has again and again sort of reinforced through their, uh, through their research. Let me give you an illustration. You've got a one or a two-year-old child, right? And they're toddling around, they're toddler, and they're playing around in their room, in the living room, playing with their toys and stuff like that. And you take uh, an item, you can be arbitrary about it, you can, you can take another toy, or you could take something that is of value to you, but you want to teach this child not to touch things. So what you do is you, you take it to the, to the coffee table, and you put it in the center of the coffee table, and you leave it there, and you don't say anything. And the kid just keeps playing around and stuff like that and may or may not notice the thing that you have put on the middle of the coffee table. But at some point along the way, you actually say to the child, you point to this thing and you say, don't touch. What have you just done? You have turned this child into an, into a, an obsessive what am I saying? They want to touch it. They're obsessed with touching it. They go up to it. They look at you. They even hold out their hand and don't touch it yet and keep looking at you, sometimes with a big fat grin on their face. And then what do they do? They grab it. What has happened is, is you, by giving the law, you have inflamed their, their selfish self-will their desire to be in charge, their desire to do what they want rather than what you are telling them to do. It happens all the time. Here's an example. Uh, in Galveston, the building was built on the water, meaning like half the building was built on land and then half the building kind of overhung the, the uh, Gulf of Mexico. And people, as they finished building it, they thought, oh man, you know, people are going to do all kinds of crazy stuff. They're going to like fish out of their windows and stuff like that because they can. And so they put up signs that said, no fishing. And sure enough, what happened? People are cracking their windows open and they're hucking out their lines and they're fishing away. And they, it wasn't actually until after they took the sign down that this subsided. Because there is something in us, you see, there is something in us that the law provokes our self-will, our desire to be in charge, our desire to say, no, I want to do it my way. That's what the law does. I have allergies. Not a lot of allergies, but I have some allergies. And there was, it had something to do with the environment. Uh, so I would get them from pollen or something like that. So I went to an allergist. And what did the allergist do? They took a whole bunch of different types of pollen and allergens, and they, they pricked me on my arm and a whole, whole bunch of places, and then they just rubbed it on. And we sat there and waited. And sure enough, a bump developed at the place that I was allergic. This, these irritants roused my response. 
And that's what the law does. It's an irritant, <laughs> if I can put it that way, that rouses this response in us, that, that reveals our sinful hearts. Because you see, we are not willing to admit how bad we are. And the law helps reveal that for us. Without it, without the law, we will live in denial time and time and time again. You know, you read the son, you you talk to someone and you say, you know, are you a murderer? No, I'm not a murderer. Are you an adulterer? No, I'm not an adulterer. And you say, oh, okay, can we go look at the Sermon on the Mount together, please? And you read the Sermon on the Mount and there Jesus says, if you have hated your brother in your heart, you're a murderer. Boom, right? If you have looked on a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. And you don't even have to just go to the Sermon on the Mount. What's the last of the Ten Commandments? Anybody want to try to guess? Thou shalt not covet. How interesting, eh? There's no real, like, behavior, visible behavior connected to coveting, right? Like, Maybe too many hours on Pinterest can be a behavior connected to coveting, but, but it's really something that just exists in the heart. See, without the law, we, we, will, admit, we will say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, you know, I'm sometimes maybe I'm a little hard on people or I, maybe I can get a little angry with people or whatever, but then the law comes in, the Sermon on the Mount comes in and it shines this bright light on your heart and it says, if you have hatred and anger in your heart, you're a murderer. And you go, whoa, I had no idea it was that bad. See, I talk to people all the time what do you think about Christianity? What do you like about Christianity? One of the things they will say over and over and over again is that they love, uh, they love the golden rule. Do unto others as you will have them do unto you. Or love your neighbor as yourself. That's the way they'll put it. But if you think about it, do you, have you ever actually loved your neighbor the way you love yourself? What does it mean to love someone? It means, in the Bible anyway, it means to care about them deeply and care about their flourishing, care about their uh, progressing and their lives being all that it can be. Do you work as hard? I, I got, Jenny's my neighbor. She lives right next door, like literally my neighbor. I am not thinking about Jenny's flourishing the way I am thinking about my own or I am about my kids or my family. See, the law shows us just how bad we are. Think of, that, think of that toddler again. We don't like to be told. We want to be our own bosses. And the law, what it does is, as it shines a light on our lives, it shows us the need for the promise. It shows you that you needed that seed. It shows you that you needed that Savior. Okay? So that's the relationship between the law and the promise. The law was, was, is meant to point you to Jesus Christ. And Paul shows you two ways that it does this. Uh, There are more, but there's two in this text anyway. In verses 22 and 23, he shows us that the law behaves like... The scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that was what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came... We were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. What does he mean by that? If you go to court, right, 
and you're put on trial for having broken a law, the prosecutor says, so-and-so broke a law. And the judge listens to the case and goes, yep, you broke the law. Off to jail you go. All this talk about the law, all this concern about the law, what, what does the law do? All it does is convict. All it does is imprison. It can't save you. It can only imprison you. And the way it imprisons you, largely, is through guilt, right? We talked about it last week, that even in a world where we have gotten rid of the idea of God and we've gotten the idea, rid of the idea of sin, we still have people living this life riddled with guilt. Like Franz Kafka said, We've gotten rid of guilt, or law, we've, or God, we've gotten rid of sin, but we haven't gotten rid of guilt. Some of you may be uh, familiar with a little story by a guy named uh, Edgar Allan Poe called The Telltale Heart. Anybody here familiar with that story? Go read it. It's a fa fantastic story. And it's about a guy who murders an old man. And the guy spends all his time trying to justify why he had to kill this old man and, and why uh, it was necessary for him to do that and why this guy probably actually kind of deserved it. He had this thing called a vulture eye, which uh, is very interesting. But anyhow, he, the way he covers up the murder is he dismembers the guy. I know, it's kind of gross, kind of like CSI stuff or bones type stuff. But anyhow, he takes the heart and he, and he hides it under the floorboards in, in his house. And by the end of the story, the guy goes completely mad. He goes insane. He loses his mind because he can hear the beating of the hideous heart under the floorboards. It just keeps beating and beating and beating and beating and beating. What's that a representative of? It's a representation of his guilt. He can't escape his guilt. It's like Macbeth's wife, right? You know Lady Macbeth, most pathetic figure perhaps in all of Shakespeare? They killed King Duncan. She has blood on her hands, and she's constantly washing her hands. Out, out, damn spot, she says over and over again. And she goes crazy too, with guilt, because you can't escape it. And self-denial, because we cannot escape it, because we can't escape the guilt, because we're prisoners to the guilt, we also become prisoners to self-denial. We, we, we cannot take a good look in the mirror and admit how bad it is. We're like a woman who has put all their hope and faith in their beauty and they know that they're starting to wrinkle so they just can't look in a mirror anymore. So the law acts as a prison guard. But then interestingly enough, Paul said it also acts as a tutor and as a teacher. And this is very fascinating. Verses 24 and 25 so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Here's what Paul's doing. He's, he's saying the law works like Greek households. You've got to know something about Greek households to understand this. In Greek households, children between the ages of about six, five, six, and adolescence were basically raised by tutors. They weren't raised so much by the parents, but tutors were put in charge of them instead, okay? And the job of a tutor was to train the child, teach the child, discipline the child until they became an adult, and then they were released from the tutelage of the tutor, and they were supposed to be able to live their lives without supervision. They were now expected to be able to just kind of go on their own way. And Paul says that the law's purpose, and this remains the purpose, even if you're a Christian, was to do that, was to be a teacher. And, and it does, there's two, two sides to this. The first one is, here's a pattern that you see in people. 
sometimes. They're not raised in a Christian home. They're not taught the Christian faith. They hear the gospel. They embrace the gospel. They trust in Jesus as their Savior. And they're, they're spiritually on fire, but frankly, they're kind of spiritually immature. And because of that immaturity, they become like super religious, right? It's kind of like the reformed smoker thing. You ever met the reformed smoker? They used to smoke and then they quit. And now all they can talk about is how terrible smoking is and how they would never touch it again. Oh, I can't even handle the smell anymore and the taste and all that kind of stuff. Now I can walk up the stairs and I don't huff and puff. I'm like a new man, right? You can see that I've been a reformed smoker. Uh, so, so this person sort of decides, look, I, I'm going to clean up my life. I have found Jesus. I found a new way of living and therefore, I am going to change my behavior, and they start new habits, and they implement them, and it's going really well. But of course, they've forgotten that they're still a sinner, unfortunately. And so, inevitably, what happens is, is they fail, and they, 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 really, they really can't do it. They can't keep it up. And so, when they fail, their spiritual life goes it hits the floor, and now maybe they don't come to church, maybe they don't read their Bible, maybe they don't really pray anymore, and eventually, as they work through that, they have a new awakening, they're excited again, and boom, their emotional, spiritual life goes through the roof again, and everything's awesome, and they can't wait to make it to the next Bible study, and of course, they'll host the, the next prayer meeting, and yes, are we going to clean up the Coots Paradise watershed for Jesus? I'm there, right? They're doing it all, and then the cycle starts over again. And boom, they hit the bottom. They're emotionally up and down, right? They're spiritually up and down. Who else is a lot like that? Kids, right? Have you ever, have you ever watched kids have just an over-the-top response to a, a stimuli, right? Like, I, okay, that sounded very technical. What I mean is, have you ever watched your kid, you told them no about something, and they just like lose it? And you think to yourself, like, get a grip. This is not that big a deal. Like, when you're an adult, you'll look back on this and you'll think, how ridiculous that I behaved like... We used to say to our kids when they were small, they don't do this anymore now because they're all very mature, but when they were small and they did this like all other kids, we used to pull out our phone and we used to say, you want me to tape you? And then they would get even more mad. I mean, we're, we're great parents, really. Uh, <laughs> excellent. Now you're learning a lot about... Uh, our family. But anyhow, um, you see, kids are like that too. And Paul's point is, is that your job as a parent is to teach them to mature so that, so that there becomes a stability. Have you ever noticed that very spiritually mature people, often they're older because these things take time to develop, you know, they get hit with bad news and they don't completely collapse. They have a poise. They have a strength. They have, a, they have a perspective that enables them to ride through their spiritual life with a lot more stability. Do you follow what I'm saying? And, and the law is there to help, help us grow in grace. How does it help us grow in grace? Every time you fail and you see that you haven't, you haven't lived up to the law, you're driven back to Jesus. And growing in grace, in, in some ways, is just learning to go back a lot sooner. Do you get what I mean? 
You don't have to go through all the self-flatulation and the all woe is me and all the failures. You fall down and you start to say, no surprise there, and you run back to Jesus. And in Him you find forgiveness and in Him you find strength to carry on. So that's the first one. The other thing to realize is this. Uh, When you are raising your children, you teach your children virtues, you teach your children values, you teach your children your beliefs, you indoctrinate them with, with the things that are important to you, and you hope that over time they're going to accept those and receive those and believe those themselves. But as they're growing up, every now and then you kind of got to reinforce those things from the outside, right? So you want to teach your child responsibility, and so you give them chores, And when they're little, the chores are little. When they're bigger, the chores get bigger. But the point is, is that through repetition of doing that, you are teaching them responsibility. And occasionally, they fail to do their chores. And what do you have to do? You have to reinforce the importance of doing their chores. Maybe you have to take away something that they like, or maybe you have to give them something they don't want. You know what I mean. Everybody has a different way of doing it, but the same idea happens everywhere is the idea that eventually when they grow up, they will just throw all that off and do their own thing? Of course not. The reason you're doing this is because you want them to internalize these virtues and these values and these beliefs into their own hearts so that when they are off on their own, they will live those that way because they want to, not because they're afraid of, they want to do that. And here is the brilliance of the gospel. Yes, Scripture has laws. It has rules all over the place, lots of them. But when you're free from the burden of keeping them in order to please God and in order to find favor with Him, in order to be saved, when you realize that you're saved by Jesus and saved by grace, now you're free to actually internalize the law and obey Him and seek to follow Him, not in order to get something from Him, but because you want to. Just like the kid who's been going to church with mom and dad for all these years, off to university they go, and on Sunday morning when everybody else is sleeping in or sleeping it off, they get up and they go to church. There's no mom and dad there to kick them and say, hey, like my mom used to say, by night a man, by day a man, get up, we're going to church. You're on your own, you're, you're responsible for yourself, but you get up yourself and you go to church. Why? Because you've internalized the desire to meet with God yourself. You see? That's how the law teaches us. They do it because they want to. See, without the gospel, people may try to obey the law, but they'll never ever love the law. They'll never ever love the law. But with the gospel, through Jesus Christ, you can not only obey it, but you can love it. That's why at the, on the front of our bulletin, the second quote there by John Bunyan is there. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Let's pray. Father, what a complicated subject matter. Uh, But what a rich one, too. Who knew that the law uh, does all the things that we've been talking about this morning? And more, frankly. Uh, We haven't had time to go through it all. But 
we thank you for what we have learned about the place of the law, uh, that it remains important for believers, particularly as a guide for life, as how we are to live a life in, uh, pleasing to you. But we thank you, Father, that you give us the law after you give us your love and kindness and favor, so that the law is not a burden that weighs us down, but now is, is something that we seek to honor and we seek to follow and because we love you, not to get you to love us. Father, do this in us, we pray. Enable us to, to walk in obedience and in faith, trusting in Jesus all the way uh, for your glory. In his name we pray, amen.